Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm your guest host, Deb Hutton. And now it is time for Smart Speakers. Today, smart people joining me to discuss the topic of the day is Mark Mendelson, News Talk 1010 crime specialist, a former side, former homicide detective here in Toronto, and Genevieve Tomney, who is the principal at GT and Co. Mark, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that you are here today to talk about budget numbers on policing, as we know from at least a couple of weeks ago now, city staff had recommended that the budget number in the in their recommendations was $12.6 million less than Toronto Police Services Board had approved and $12.6 million less than what uh, the chief of police and the head of the police union say they need to keep pace with demand here in the city. Yesterday, we saw Olivia Chow's budget and the one place where she did not move whatsoever was on the police budget. So again, the gap is $12.6 million. I'm interested uh, both in your thoughts on that generally, but also how you think this is playing out, because both Chow and uh, Myron Demke, our police chief, appeared on Moore in the Morning today, and they are obviously both out digging in their heels on this issue. Just curious about your thoughts from a public relations perspective on the part of the police. Well, I, th- I think it's a good thing, actually, that Chief Jem- Demke is, is sort of making all of this public. I mean, he's been clear that, you know, best case scenario, he, he needs 1,000 more officers. And in order, to, in order to maintain services that we all expect, we all hear the ads on, on our station as well uh, from the police association, you know, about talking about 911 calls and over 20 minutes of delay time uh, in responding to these high priority calls. That's going to continue. The problem, Deb, is that there are so many draws to, to, to personnel in this city right now. When we talk about um, situations in, involving uh, uh, guns and gangs, and we talk about uh, you know, people stealing cars off of our driveways, et cetera, um, and the, you know, numerous, I, you can't even count the number of demonstrations that they're dealing with. We already know that they've racked up over $7 million in overtime just tackling the demonstrations over the last few months. All of the personnel that go into these task force, whether they're, you know, uh, provincially mandated or, or, or partially funded, these bodies have to come from somewhere. And they come from the uniform cars. They come from the detective offices. And, you know, and, and but there's no backfill on it. You've got almost 600 people in the police service who are off on long-term disability, whether that's physical issues or PTSD or other issues, they don't get replaced either. And you've got people retiring all the time. So, uh, you know, this money is not going to buy toys, not going to buy tanks and things of that nature. This money is would, would normally be earmarked for recruitment and putting more, more bodies in those cars. And uh, we're going to have to face the consequences if they don't get those funds. Genevieve Tomney, I I tend to agree with Mark. I think if ever there was a time for the police chief to lay out his case, it's now. There's still two weeks before um, the vote happens on the mayor's uh, actual budget. And, uh, you know, as I said, I tend to agree with Mark at a time when we're, we're dealing with so many issues of hate crime, when auto theft is in so high, it seems to me a no brainer to add the extra 12 million bucks. Yeah, look, I think that this was a really political budget from Mayor Chow. And I'm not going to go so far as to say politically savvy, but I think that she and her team have looked at this in a really politically shrewd way. You know, for example, the way she navigated conversations with the province and the federal government to turn 
you know, those results into what appeared to be major wins for the city. That was some real maneuvering. And I think that this, uh, you know, back and forth around the police budget is pretty political, too. I mean, look, several months ago, we were in a situation where the headlines day after day were about, um, you know, Torontonians fearing for their own personal safety, deciding not to ride the TTC because crime and 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 issues on, uh, on transit were at an all-time high. I think that if we were in a different news cycle right now, politically, it would be much more difficult for her to make this decision. So, you know, you raise the, the car thefts and the hate crimes. And for me, it's going to be interesting to watch how the news cycle plays out over the next couple of weeks, because she could become in a much tighter spot when it comes to the police budget than she's in right now. Well, and speaking about the maneuvering, Genevieve, that you just talked about, the feds came through with their number today. And surprise, surprise, Mark, $250 million, the exact amount of money Chow said she needed so she didn't have to levy an extra 6% on our property taxes. Shocking? Well, the, the, no, no. The, the, federal <laughs> government, uh, the federal government said, hey, you know what? I got more money in my left pocket. And uh, yeah, let's put it over here. I think that money was earmarked all the time that we've been talking about this for months now. And uh, I think the mayor played a game of chicken with the federal government. And in this case, she won. Uh, but, I, you know, that money is going to be well spent, Deb. You're sitting in that studio on Richmond Street. You remember, it wasn't that long ago, you'd walk out of that building yeah. and there were there were people living on the streets, on Richmond Street, unheard of in a city of this size. And, you know, we call ourselves a world-class city. They need the money. Immigration, uh, and, and refugees and things of that nature are all a federal mandate and they're responsible for it. They let them in. That's fine. Now who's going to pay to keep them? And that's what, uh, that's what Mayor Chow was saying. We can't afford it. It should come out of the federal coffers. And, you know, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of Mayor Chow, but kudos for her for, for playing chicken and winning. Yeah, Genevieve, I mean, uh, maybe Mark's right. And the money was sitting there all the time. Then why go through the pain of it? Because I actually do believe the the feds in Toronto expended a little bit of political capital by taking this to the very last minute. Yeah, you know, I think that I'm not sure that the money was there all the time. But look, I've I've come on this program a number of times and talked about how infuriating the finger pointing over this horrible issue has been. So I guess I guess perhaps today I need to say that I'm glad that everyone has come together and and found a way to put funding in place and and create a solution. But, you know, I think that there are more um, levers that need to be pulled and more steps that need to be taken to actually resolve this other than just committing another two hundred and fifty million dollars. Well, we shall see. And, you know, my other issue with this, uh, this sort of piecemeal thing is that there will be more refugees next year and mm -hmm. there will be a bigger bill next year uh, without a doubt. And yet no sense that the feds are truly going to keep pace with it. Um, just quickly, we're going to start this conversation of mandate letters. And I apologize, we don't have a ton of time. Bottom line, the letters that a premier sends to his or her cabinet ministers to give them their marching orders for the first year and for the full mandate, um, those have been deemed by the Supreme Court today to be something that is exempt from the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act. In other words, they can be kept confidential. Your quick thoughts, Mark. Well, it went through the privacy commissioner. It went through two levels of court in this province. And now the uh, the highest court in this land has spoken. And that's going to be the end of that discussion. 
whether the premier or any subsequent government decides that uh, they want to change the rules in terms of transparency, that's going to be up to them. But I mean, the conversation about this is pretty well dead now. And I know you went toe to toe with Jerry uh, Agar earlier today. Yeah. And I and I tend to agree with you on it. I mean, I I think that you know cabinet ministers and caucus need to feel uh, confident that you know when they're speaking in their rooms about strategies and ideas and and what's going right and what's going wrong, uh, that because that would be the next thing that. Uh, you know, people would be asking for what are the minutes of those meetings? I, and I think people will speak far, far more clear and be far more honest with their own pockets um, and cabinet ministers if, if they if they don't fear the fact that this is going to end up somewhere in a freedom of information request. So I, I don't think it hurts us, but it's the end of the discussion. Supreme Court of Canada has spoken. Yeah, Genevieve, I'll, uh, Genevieve, I'll uh, hold you over till after the break on this topic. But for those who just joined us, Mark referenced a, an argument I had with Jerry, a healthy argument, a happy argument this morning on the issue of the mandate letters. And there's nothing to prevent people, uh, premiers, as Premier Wynne did, the only one in the last 35 years since the mandate letters came out under Harris. There's nothing to prevent you from putting out a form of the mandate letters. I just don't think you're going to get real mandate letters if they are going to be in the public domain and you're not going to get, therefore, good decision making. But Genevieve, I'll leave it to you to uh, rebut that or agree after the break. Mark Mendelson, News Talk 1010 crime specialist and former homicide detective and Genevieve Tomney principal at GT and Co. They will Stay with me after the break. Hope you do as well. Deb Hutton, this is The Rush. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm your guest host, Deb Hutton. When we uh, took the break for traffic, we were discussing the Supreme Court decision this morning that says that the Ontario government has uh, every right to keep mandate letters, which are those letters of direction to from a premier to his or her cabinet ministers, mm-hmm. private. In other words, they are exempt from the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act, which exists in this province and through which media in particular, but also average folks can request documentation that they think is important from their government. We gave uh, Mark Mendelson an opportunity to respond. Genevieve Tomney, uh, your thoughts on this? Okay, so mine's going to be partial agreement with you, Deb, because I do agree that cabinet confidentiality matters, right? We've we've been in those rooms. It's important to be able to have a space to hash things out. I mean, these are our elected officials and they have to be able to have those tough conversations and feel like they can do that without, you know, eyes glaring down on them. Here's the thing for me with this one. Taking this all the way to the Supreme Court likely cost millions of dollars, millions and and for what right so um the the queen's park press gallery released some of these mandate letters through through leaks last year there wasn't much in them so whether in what's remaining the government is hiding something here or whether this is just a case of the ford government digging in its heels and refusing to be wrong on this and spending millions of dollars in the process neither i think is a good look but what about the precedent it would have set if they had left the lower court ruling stand. Yeah, I mean, I think there's precedent for releasing the mandate letters as well. You mentioned that the Kathleen Wynne government did it. The Trudeau government has done it as well. So, you know, I think if this became, if mandate letters being released became a precedent, then yes, you would get mandate letters that are available for public consumption and you'd probably get something else that was more secret and more um, confidential for cabinet. So I think that, you know, 
either way, you're probably going to end up in the same situation. I just think that, you know, the process of of doing this and the expense of doing this um, to me seems a bit off. Um, There is a study out that says the gap between the number of days for illness and disability in the public sector and the private sector is not only fairly large, but is steadily growing. So unrelated, for example, to the period of time around COVID, it goes back a number of years and plots the graph. And it used to be public sector was always more days off. But the gap between public and private was far, far less than it is today. Last year, 13.4 days of illness and disability in the public sector and 7.5. So heading to almost double, 7.5 days of illness and disability in the private sector. Mark Mendelson, you worked in the public sector. What's your general take on this statistic? Well, I think unions have a big influence on how this is all being handled. I can take you back to uh, to, to when I was a, a uniform supervisor, a sergeant. And if uh, someone on my shift was off for three days in a row, they automatically got a visit from the likes of me at their home. And they better have opened up their door, blowing their nose at the same time. Because otherwise, a doctor's note was required, and uh, you know you you could have been documented for malingering, if you will. But having said that, back then we weren't as alive to the issues of mental health. Uh, I mean, you, you can't look at somebody and say you're having a, you're having a bout of depression or anxiety or or early PTSD. That can't that can't be sort of diagnosed by looking at somebody. So, and we have a lot more of, of the private um, of the public service people working at home too. It's easy to call in sick. Um, you know, there's no way of measuring it where, and, and they have a strong union. So the, these visits, these uh, sort of uh, orders to produce doctor's notes doesn't fly anymore. If you worked in the private sector and you were taking all these days off, it would be an, it might be an HR issue at the end of the day. So it doesn't surprise me at all. The unions are strong. They have tremendous influence. And, and the, the, the public sector simply doesn't have enough people around to follow up on people who are ill and who may have to produce a doctor's note. I, I'm not surprised at all. Genevieve? So I'm really glad that Mark raised the issue of, of mental health and mental illness because I, I when I read this, I had to think that that comes into play here. Um, I think that we are more awake to the idea that, um, you know, that mental health is health and it does require sick days sometimes. And and I, I would suspect that there must be a correlation in terms of, you know, the acceptance of that in the workplace and what we're seeing bear out here. And then I think the other thing is paid sick leave, right? I mean, we know that there is better paid sick leave in the public sector than there is in the private sector. And so chances are you've got a lot more instances of people going to work sick or going to work suffering in the private sector because they wouldn't get paid if they weren't there. Yeah. And and again, I, I get the point on mental health because I think that is is we are much more cognizant of it. We are much more uh, understanding of it. And and people recognize that one of the ways to help you know battle that is to take a mental health day. But my issue is sort of that, that to me explains the trajectory of days off. It doesn't explain fully the growing gap, uh, I think, between the public and private sector. There's another Stats Canada um, study out that says that more than 15% of immigrants decide to leave Canada either 
to return to their homeland or immigrate to another country within 20 years of their arrival. Mark Mendelson, this actually didn't surprise me. In fact, I thought it was quite a low number, but would like your take on it. You know, it, it didn't surprise me either. I mean, look, people are always looking for greener grass on the other side. And sometimes they come here and they open up businesses and they have a family and it just doesn't work out for them. But another and, and I know I know people who have done this, who, who, were, who were immigrants here and been here for 20 years and their elderly parents back home, wherever that might be, um, are getting to the point where they, they need extra help and extra care and it's not available there. And they've made these decisions. I have to go back home. I have to look after my parents. And it might be a, it might be business decisions. It might be it might be students that came here, went to university, got a degree, got the job, wasn't quite what they thought it was going to be at the end of the day, and it was greener back home, and off they went. So these numbers don't really surprise me at all. Yeah, I actually thought Genevieve Tomney that it was it was quite low because, you know, Mark's given an example of of some uh, folks uh, who have emigrated here for greener pastures and then decided to go home. But you know, you also think about people who come here to work because of a job, and if you are the kind of person who's going to pick up and move and try something new, then no surprise that you'd pick up and move and try something new after a few years as well. Yeah. And my question is, where are they going? Are they going home or are they going to the US or are they going to the UK? Um, That's the question that I have about the trajectory. There's actually some really interesting trust research that supports this too, that um, new immigrants to Canada are far more trusting of Canadian institutions than Canadians who have been here a long time. And then the more time that they spend here, the more their trust starts to erode. So I think it speaks to that idea that you come here with an expectation and kind of sold on a promise. And then as the reality sort of bears out, you realize that everything that, you know, was kind of built up is maybe not as as glossy as you thought it would be. And so but that's the question for me is where are they going? What's what's the next step? Yeah. And I think the answer is yes to all of the the facts <laughs> that you put out there. Mark Mendelson, News Talk 1010 crime specialist, former homicide detective here in the city. Genevieve Tomney, principal at GTN Co. Thanks so much for joining me and spending a little bit of your Friday afternoon with me on The Rush. Coming up in the five o'clock hour, I'm actually going to ask you to give me your perspective on why the growing gap between missed days for illness and disability in the private sector versus the public sector. And we're going to have some fun just after the five o'clock news. You're listening to Deb Hutton. This is The Rush on News Talk 1010.